It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. How do you feel great on vacation? Like, really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to another week of the Tap and Go. Thank you again for tuning in. Today we're joined by an ex-England international, but more importantly, and what he's arguably better known for, he is someone who has invested millions of pounds into player welfare and development over the years, especially in England and across the United Kingdom. He has sought to go after players and make sure they get the treatment they deserve, which at times is certainly something that has been lacking in the professional game, especially if you're looking back any further than 15 to 20 years. He's always claimed to pursue the all-black legacy of leaving the game in a better place than when you found it, and I think you'll struggle to find anyone who disagrees with this it's the man who founded the rugby players association mr damien hopley there's no better way to kickstart your weekend than listen to a man who genuinely cares about every single player in the game i hope you find this as powerful and interesting as i did and i hope you enjoy it as per usual guys get in touch if there's anything you want us to chat about on the pod or if there's anyone in particular you want to hear from but for now yeah enjoy guys Thank you very much for joining us this morning, Damien. Um, how are you? All well with you? Very well, very good to good to see you. Um, so obviously you did have a very brief but and cut out, obviously cut short your rugby career. But um, was that something that you found quite hard to deal with? That you couldn't play the game you love because of injury, but you had to stop at I think twenty seven, wasn't it? Yeah, I know it was very difficult. It was heartbreaking, and I'm sure there's still a part of me that's very sad about what happened. Um, and um, I guess the game when I played is unrecognizable to the sort of uh, uh, the whole sort of support and event that it is now. But, um, you know, it's like any young athlete, you, you know, if you're, if you're sort of on a pathway to uh, success and, and um, hopefully sort of acclaim, then it, it, for me, it was like a sort of bereavement, you know, my, my life just sort of stopped when, when I had my knee injury. And I, I had a number of sort of unsuccessful attempts to come back. So I, I think eventually by, by the time I retired, I, I'd had like eight operations on my knee and every time you sort of go in for surgery and as, as much as the um, getting knocked out pre-theatre pre is quite fun, um, you're sort of 
hoping that will be the last time and you're going to come back. So you go through this range of emotions. And I guess that ultimately you, you, there's always optimism. You know, I think that most athletes, you know, we're very sort of upbeat and, and, um, and, and you want things to happen and you want your body to respond in a, in a, in a positive way. Um, and unfortunately after, you know, months and months of rehab and I, I damaged my ACL playing captain in seventh team in Hong Kong. And then I, had that repaired and I re-damaged it. And by that point, the surgeon I had just said that, you know, if I were you, you've got your whole life ahead of you. Just be very careful. So, um, so yeah, that was it. And it was heartbreaking, no, no doubt about it. How did you go about coping with that? That's sort of in the immediate aftermath, sort of, as you said, all you'd known was rugby to that point, so. Good, good question. Um, it, it was really hard, actually. I, you know, I'm very lucky. I was very lucky then, I'm still very lucky. That I've got a great sort of support network through my family and friends. Um, and um, yeah, it, no, it, it was it was a very challenging time, and, and there wasn't really anyone to turn to. And, and I think you know, the one thing that I look back with huge pride with the RPA is we now have a confidential counselling service in place. We have support set up specifically for this and other you know, mental health challenges. So, but but at the time it was difficult. Um, I, I remember meeting. I also met a number of athletes who had career-changing and probably life-changing injuries. Chuck with David Boost, who you probably won't remember, but if you Google him, he had a horrific um, fib-tib fracture playing for Coventry City against Man United back in the 90s. And, and I think by the time I met him, he'd had 17 operations, couldn't really walk properly. And I think you then meet players with spinal injuries and you start to get a bit of perspective on your own. So I was, at the time, I was very you know, absorbed in myself. I'm sure many people think I still am. But um, yeah, and it just, you sort of get a sense of like, actually what's happened to you isn't too bad. And I had a good education, uh, you know, I'm articulate, I had things going for me. So I sort of had to bit of, do a bit of a sort of, um, have a word of myself really. And, and, and it's funny because you can, I think you can speak to so many people when, when you're going through challenges. I think ultimately you've got to come to terms with it yourself and then start to rebuild your life, which is what I try to do. Yeah, no, completely. We spoke to Ed Jackson, I think it probably would have been over a year ago now, but as in he was, I mean, sort of the perfect example of what you just said of it is a life-changing injury, but you can't change it. So you've got to try and just find your way to move on, try and live your life the best you can. Um, I mean, yeah, he's, I he's think it's interesting with, with with Ed in particular, Freddie, because you know, there's someone who who we know very well through our charity restart and through the rugby fraternity. And I'll talk a bit more about it at the end when we talk about restart, but it's interesting because he, um, I've asked him before, you know, would you change your life now to have the life you had? And he's always like, no, because I'm doing things now I never thought I was capable of doing. My life's changed completely after a life-threatening injury. And I'm actually probably much happier now than I was as a sort of rugby player playing, you know, for, for, for Gwent, Newport Gwent Dragons and, you know, sort of big fish, small pond. And now I, I look at the impact he's had and it's extraordinary on the back of that injury so it's and I just think it's you know without getting too philosophical you know life does feel some very extraordinary things and, and it's how you bounce back and manage that is probably what defines you as, a, as, a, as an individual and then obviously when you were sort of looking at what you were going to do after rugby was it always the dream and goal to stay in rugby so obviously we'll come on but you were found well, the other I, yeah I, I'm that old Freddie that I had to work whilst I played rugby so it was an amateur game then so when I came down from Cambridge University in 92, I'm going to say, 
blimey. Um, I uh, went to work for a money broken firm in the city called ICAP, who were very successful, quite well they took me on, I'm not sure, a theology graduate from St Andrews in Cambridge working in the city didn't quite sort of marry up, but they did take me on and it was a brilliant environment to work in. They, they allowed me time off to go and play rugby for Watts in England. So it was a really good uh, relationship into the symbiosis. The game then went professional after the 95 Rugby World Cup. So um, Rupert Murdoch bought the rights for, for South African Museum, Australia, Sansa, and uh, suddenly the game went professional overnight. So then the RFU, in their wisdom, um, decided not to centrally contract all the players. I think a decision that has haunted them ever since. Um, but a few of us were centrally contracted for, for a year before the club's owners came in and got involved. So um, it was interesting then because it was more about, right, I'm now going to get paid to play rugby, which is sort of the dream. Um, and it was so amateur in those days. I mean, you, you know, if, if I think if current players were transported back into those times, They'd be, they'd be astonished and appalled at, at, at what went on. But that was how it was. And so um, when my injury came, I've always been fascinated by the business of sport. I just think it's a, it's it's an industry that's never going to get smaller. There are, there are more and more professional teams developing on a sort of, um, on an annual basis across the globe. And the interest probably has never been greater in terms of sport. We've got a, world, a Women's Rugby World Cup this year. We've got the, the Men's Football World Cup. Then got next year the, the the men's rugby world cup um and yeah everything that goes goes on in golf at the moment you know you look at the live tour and what's happening there so the sport has always been you know a passion but also something i just find fascinating so it was sort of a bit of a i, I took a bit of a punt really so uh, you know I, I was so incensed by how the rfu treated me as a national sevens captain and in those days you played 15s and sevens it wasn't either or but I was just really sort of passionate about not ensuring this didn't happen to anyone else. So hence I sort of founded the RPA out of my front room in Fulham and um, with no money, we, we had nothing. We just had player subs and um, we just went into battle really hard and to, to get player great players, greater security um, in their professional sport. Mm. So obviously, yeah, just talking on those early days and you say obviously you had no money. So it was all, you relied on almost player backing. What was, did you find sort of like the trickiest part of that? What was the, how was the hardest, like big first stepping stone to get over? Well, well definitely not getting paid was, was quite hard. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, but, you know, I was sort of passionate about it. So I wasn't, and I always felt, and maybe it's a good sort of analogy, but I always felt that, um, you know, investing my time into that area, even though I wasn't paid for the first two years, I'd still meet an awful lot of people. And so I felt that it was a very good environment to be in. And it was entrepreneurial. You know, I started a business from nothing effectively. Um, and, but we, what we did have was a voice and the support of the senior players. So all of that England group, I guess, I played with. So they knew me, trusted me, you know, encouraged me to get on with it. And, um, and that, was a, that was a huge comfort. And then as soon as you start to make small breakthroughs and small wins, there's a momentum that gathers. I, I employed my first colleague and then two became four and and so and, and currently the rpa now has, has 21 people working there so it's really grown over the years um but certainly the first challenges are just i guess it's like anything just getting your foot in the door making sure that your voice is credible and you're speaking on behalf of the people you represent um and dealing with some really um interesting club owners 
the likes of Sir John Hall, Tom Walkinshaw, uh, Nigel Ray, and just trying to make sure that they had put they were putting the players um, or making the players central to all the decisions that were being made, which which tended to happen. So you know we influenced very well from the get go. And so obviously recently you sort of said your I think it was your eleven like big things from the RPA, the big takeaways, like the things you're proud of. Two, it sort of jumped out at me. So the first one was obviously the Lions contracts. So I think it was it 2005 that you managed to get sole control of that. What was it particularly about the Lions that sort of jumped out of you as something that needed help? Well, it just, it was actually the 2001 Lions tour was the That's first time that we did in, in Australia. And, um, you know, I think w- w- where players associations work very well is when they become sort of coordinated and organising around the players themselves. So obviously we, we, we've, we've worked with the England team since 2003. Um, and and in, in the Lions in 2001, it just made sense that someone was going into bat for the players. And actually, you know, I think Jono was captain of that tour, you know, um, because a lot of the players just want to play. They don't want to get involved in the sort of politics and the business. And, yeah, they want to make sure they're getting the optimum value for, for, for what they're doing. And, um, yeah, so I think from that perspective, they want to have a, 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 someone there in, on, their, on their behalf as a sort of trusted representative, making sure that nothing is being done that's untoward. And so that was a, a relationship that lasted for, for my whole sort of RPA tenure um, up until the 21 Lions tour. And um, yeah, you know, I think if you look from where, where the Lions have gone from and to, I think we were all frustrated that the, the tour didn't happen in the summer uh, up in the UK in, in 2021. I think it would have been extraordinary. And, and it was a big topic of conversation amongst the players, amongst the coaches and uh, the, the administrators, including myself. And, and, and I just I sort of feel that the Lions missed a trick there because to have a home series would have been the one-off because it, we lived, that was an extraordinary time with the pandemic. But um, to have a home line series, I think would have probably put the Lions into the public consciousness yeah, for the next 20, 30 years. So it was a shame that, you know, as ever in sport, you have to be agile and you have to sort of move with them. Um, what what uh, what the, uh, the the less the least worst option is, which is what happened in South Africa. Mm. Do you think if that home tour had gone ahead, I'd say it would have been thrust to the public eye, but also the ability to obviously have a completely home fan base, just like for the game, what do you think it would have actually done? Bar are you talking about grassroots rugby, just like increasing a passion in the game, or I, I just think you know the Lions the Lions tour hasn't been on terrestrial TV since 1989 or 1990, mm. yeah, maybe 1993. That was the last time. And I think people who travel, and, and I don't know if you've been on a Lions tour, Freddie, but my advice oh, yeah. to you and anyone listening is get yourself on a Lions tour. It is just extraordinary. And I, 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 you know, I was never a Lion, would have loved to have been. But I, what I find incredible is that you've got people who would literally knock lumps out of each other for years on end, and then suddenly... Ian McGeek and Warren Gatlin brings them together to perform against the best teams in the world and win, you know, and you're saying what an extraordinary thing that is. So, um, and I think the unity amongst the Lions sort of really strips back a lot of what rugby is all about. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I just sort of feel that what it would have done is it, it would brought more, more home audiences to watch the Lions live. I think for the players to have their, family and friends to see them representing the Lions in a home series would have been unique. It would have been a one-off because the Lions are a touring team. But um, and, and I just feel it would have probably catapulted rugby into a different stratosphere. You know, and if you look at the timing was interesting because um, 
England football, men's football, were going gangbusters in the, in the Euros, and they'd obviously got the final against Italy. And you know, in the sort of the way that the lionesses have completely captured the hearts of the nation, you just feel that if we use that sort of football springboard to then bring the lions on. And I remember watching, you know, the football, and then you sort of turn over to to, to Sky for the lions, and they're playing in front of an empty stadium in Cape Town. You just think, oh, this looks a bit shit, actually. So, um, so yeah, I, but I, I just feel it would have done a really, given rugby a really good shot in the arm, almost like the Olympics did in 2012. With a sort of home home Olympics, we got a glimpse of that, didn't we? Because then they did they did one against Japan. Was it at Murrayfield? They did one walk game, and that was on they Channel did, Four. They had, they, yeah, they, they had a walk game Murrayfield where they ran out of beer at half time. Uh, <laughs> it was a limited capacity because of COVID. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, and, and again, it may well be going forward that the Lions look to do a um, a home test or a sort of you know a warm up test match. Um, because it's it is such a rare um, and beautiful thing, but you know you listen to Serena McGeek and Warren Gatlin, all these people, you just sort of feel that they need more time to bring that team together. And and unfortunately, given everything that rugby is all about at the moment, we play too much rugby, so that time is absolutely impossible. So it's just quite difficult to to, to work through. Mm. You touched on it earlier, but so you said that you did, you took over the England contracts after 2003. Do you think, was, so obviously the World Cup was obviously that big thing, was that just the springboard you needed? Yeah, I think, I mean, before that, the players had been represented by a, um, a, a, a third party agency. And I think the one thing that we do know in rugby is that um, you're, you're better off inside the tent working with the, with the stakeholders. Um, and so we took that over and then we grew that exponentially. And also on the back of the World Cup success, um, the players were already, were already in a contract at that point. So we were negotiated in 2004, the, the next cycle of contracts. Um, and uh, again, we just used very straightforward um, balance sheet, looking at what the RFU sponsors are paying and then marrying that to what the England players should get paid. And we had some really robust... Um, really robust uh, negotiations with the RFU. Obviously, the players went on strike in 2000 under Martin Johnson, mm. um, which was a really interesting day for everyone. Um, I remember I was aware at the time I got a call saying, we're not playing against Argentina, and I was like, good grief. But, but you know, eventually, I think it probably that show of togetherness was a, a step in the right direction to winning the World Cup in 2003. So, yeah, and, and, and obviously, we... That the England players are now the best played players in world rugby. It's something we're very proud of. Um, and we sort of hope that that, well, we know that will continue based on the sort of revenue share model that, that, that the players now have with the RFU. Um, so, so the future is very bright. I think the challenge now is how do you create the haves and have nots within that squad environment? And I know that there's discussion about what the model should look like and should there be more parity amongst the players? Um, regardless of whether you're playing test matches or not. So um, that, that, but that's just part of the sort of evolution of, of what that England contract could look like. At a club level, do you think there's a danger of money becoming too influential and potentially ruining it? Obviously, a couple of years ago, there was a rumour of Otoji going abroad on his X amount of million dollar contracts. Do you think that has the potential yeah. to actually become a negative thing? Well, I think players have the option to go abroad. And, and, and clearly, we, we've seen in the last two years under pandemic, we've seen... Um, you know, salary cap cuts, wage cuts, which I know players have been very vocal about, um, which is entirely understandable. Clearly, the world's gone through a pretty 
you know, horrendous time in terms of COVID and sport in particular, and, and rugby even more so, the sort of fault lines of finance of rugby got really exposed in that time. So, yeah, we're currently living through what may well be a, one club going into administration this week, um, based on all the discussions around Worcester. Um, so the, the finances in rugby are very, very fragile. So for me, it's about sustainability. How do you create an environment? And there's a very good answer from the time just say, do you look at the American model and create franchises? Do you look at fewer teams in the premiership to, let, to create fewer rugby so, or less rugby? So almost you have to go back a step to then move forward again. And, and I would, I think we do. I think, I think we just, you know, there's too much rugby that's played. The calendar's too cluttered. England clashing against clubs makes for, for yeah. just bad, um, uh, you know, it, it's just bad for the sport. You know, we want to celebrate Marcus Smith playing for England, not worry about Quinn's playing on the same day without their star player. So how do you create an environment? And it's just, and this is the, the $64 billion question that we've always asked about rugby, is how do we make it more um, uh, commercial? And, and I think less has to be more. Do you not think there's an argument, though, with having England playing while clubs are playing, it's giving that next generation that chance to get the experience. While Smith's away, you're getting a young tenant, or you look at the likes of Charlie Atkinson, he wouldn't have got the opportunity at Wasps without there being internationals away. No, absolutely. But, but I think what, you, what, what England needs to do is try and reduce the number of international uh, clashes or the clubs in England need to... Well, what the clubs in England need to do is work more hand in glove, which I don't think they do anywhere near enough. But I think there are opportunities for us Charlie, you know, even Charlie Bracken coming through at Saracens and all of these younger yeah. players. Absolutely, there are opportunities there. It's about, um, I think it's about not um, weakening the, the, the club product. And, you know, when you read someone like Rob Baxter, who for me is, you know, he epitomises everything that's good about English rugby as a coach, as a person, as a leader, and as and as a rugby man. And, and you know, he talks about the fact that clubs are almost disincentivized to have England players at the moment because they're probably asking for the most money. And, and again, Anthony Watson made this point in the summer when he was moving. He said, well, you know, I'm having to take a wage cut to move to another club because England players are no longer as attractive because for this season, for example, they're available for 11 of the games. Yeah. So, um, and, and by definition, they will demand and command the most money. So, um, so it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting tension between what's right for England and what's right for the clubs. And I guess what we're, we're most important is what's best for the players in terms of optimising their earnings, but also not breaking them um, after three or four years and you know, having serious injuries. So th those are the tensions that, that sort of sit within the current framework of having 13 professional clubs in England. Mm -hmm. No, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out sort of over the next year. is going to be crucial in in the whole yeah. game of how financially it works. Absolutely. And I think, you know, if you look at, you know, what the, the, the other piece that's interesting is around um, CBC and private equity coming into, you know, Six Nations, URC, Premiership, and also Silver Lake as private equity going into New Zealand. What role do they play? And, and I think it's fair to say if CBC hadn't invested 200 million into the earning 27.5% of the premiership, um, I'd say probably most, if not all of the clubs would have gone bust by now because of what? Because of the impact of, uh, of, of, um, of COVID. So um, it's just going to be fascinating. And, and obviously I'm not involved now, but to sort of take a, a seat on the benches with my popcorn, you just think, okay, how will this play out? And what do we, um, 
what, what can we expect from rugby going forward to consolidate and then I guess make sure that it can be sustainable and it's not reliant on 12, 13 club owners, um, some of whom, as we are fully aware, can't afford to pay the bills. Mm. Well, just moving on. So obviously you set up the RPA to look after the players. And two particular cases sort of in the last two years or so that should come out, one obviously being Steve Thompson and all the others who have suffered with head injuries. What do you sort of see as, obviously, there's now the lawsuit and everything, what do you sort of see as the next steps? Obviously, I'm sure you've had an involvement in that. Yeah, we haven't actually been involved with that. Um, Steve, Alex Popper, Michael Lippmann, and I think 100 plus players have gone, uh, have, have been working with a, a lawyer um, and, and not involved the, the players' union. Um, we obviously have a view about what, what it's all about. And, and I think the first thing to say is it's just horrendous that players of that age are suffering from um, such a terrible disease as early onset. And I, and I think what the, the clubs, sorry, what the, what the lawmakers, World Rugby and the governing bodies need to do urgently is start to address um, some of the, what I would call the low-hanging fruit here. So whether that's the number of substitutes that, that can be used at any one time, contact and training, tackle height. I don't think there's any magic bullet to sort of resolve the, um, the sort of the, the ongoing issue that concussion is the number one injury in our sport. Um, but I think the game can help itself without becoming more uh, mandated in how you train. What does it look like? What's bone on bone? What's 50%? What's 100%? And how much contact training you can do in the week? And, and then I come back to this point about, you know, if, if we all as a sport want to reduce the number of unintentional head, head impacts, then you're coming back to the number of games played, how you train and all these sorts of things. And I think a number of clubs now are just far less contact training driven. Um, but I also think that there probably needs to be more mandated um, procedures around how you do that. And one of the really interesting things that's happening this year is that all clubs in the Premiership are being given instrumented mouth guards um, to measure collision, impact, force, all sorts of different things. And, um, and then that obviously that data is going to be invaluable. I think the question everyone seems to be asking is how quickly can that data start to make an impact? Because if it's a sort of one, two year study and there's still a lot of challenges around concussion, so what, what can be done? So my personal view is I think we should reduce the number of substitutes and actually only bring people on when they're injured like it used to be. Mm. And then make sure there's enough uh, rigor around substitutes to make sure that people aren't too effectively coming off when they, when they need to stay on. Because I think you're going to reduce body mass. If the players have to play for 80 minutes, they can't keep trundling around at 150, 140 kg. So mm. yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different things that could be nuanced here, but I, but I think it needs stronger leadership in that area. Do you think that there's anything in the argument of introducing contact later? So trying to almost remove from the grassroots game, wait till people get a little bit older? As, as in, when when do you as start in, contact? Yeah, as in so the talk of removing scrums or just full stop, stopping contact until you get to a sort of bigger age because concussions for yeah. 10, 11 year olds at the moment is just that's something. Well, I, I guess it's interesting looking at what New Zealand have done and they've sort of, they've weight graded everything. So mm. it's about how big you are and that might, that might be an answer. Um, but again, I, I just feel there's a lot of noise in this area that no one's going right. This is definitively what we should be doing. And, and I'd look to World Rugby as the international governing body and say, okay, well, 
it's great that you've got the most commercially successful World Cup coming up in France next year, but how about we look at some of the existential challenges to rugby yeah. around, you know, head collision. There's obviously, a, a, I don't know where the law case or the lawsuit is at the moment, but yeah, there's obviously a lot of challenges around that. And, and, and um, I, I know they are working very hard to it. I think the pace at which everything is happening probably is, is a challenge. And then the other big story which sort of broke was obviously the Luther Burrell one when he spoke out about how he's been treated. From your sort of, as just a bystander almost, what was your sort of take on it? I know you've been quite vocal about parts of it. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, sorry, my coffee machine is just about to fire. No worries. So I'll just, I'll just say, so for those who are unaware, so Luther spoke out about racism and how he'd been treated within the game, just sorry for those who are unaware. Yeah, we, um, oh, sorry, I hope this stop going. <laughs> Um, so yeah, uh, in terms of Luther, you know, I was very active. I think you know what he went through was absolutely appalling, and we were heavily involved. I'm sure still are heavily involved around uh, around his specific situation. But you know, forget rugby, forget sport. No one in society should be put through what he went through. So. They are, if you know, conducting an investigation. Um, but yeah, certainly from just from a human level, you just think this is this is like archaic. And um, for that to be happening in modern society is just horrific. And um, yeah, I know Luther was very grateful for the support. And, and I think from, from the RPA's perspective, we, you know, we want Luther to be heavily involved going forward. So yeah, that terrible word banter that people throw about, which effectively gives you license to say things to people you wouldn't dream of and then you sort of disguise it as banter you just sort of think this is a nonsense so um yeah i just sort of feel like um it was probably the first time we've seen that sort of discussion within rugby and it just need, needs to be um investigated thoroughly you know a, a a big part of this is how the rfu the rpa and premiership rugby have a diversity inclusion mm -hmm. equity and and just correct behaviours that are unacceptable, which is the most important thing here, because players are role models, you know, and you just feel that they need to um, realise that. We do a lot of work at the RPA around social media training when players come into squads, and um, yeah, just to remind players that they are very, very much in the public eye and need to be um, need to behave accordingly. Thank you. Um, well, we'll finish by talking about restart, but just before that, just on general, looking across your 24-year career at RPA, are there any particular, yeah. like, high, high, what was, like, your proudest moment as set from setting it up? Yeah. I guess, Joe, the first one was our first ever awards dinner. <laughs> and um, it was at Shoeless Joe's on the Embankment, which I think is now, or Temple, which is now maybe the walkabout. And we had 300 people in the room. We didn't know what we were doing. And it was an extraordinary night. And Neil Back won the Players' Player of the Year. Quite rightly so, because I mean, Neil was, a, was an extraordinary rugby player. And I remember waking up the next morning, slightly dusty, thinking that was amazing and we're really onto something here. So that was like, I guess that was a sort of, that was a, a, a real sense of achievement with my late colleague, Simon Pilkington, to, to pull that off. I think, obviously, England winning the World Cup in 2003 was extraordinary just to sort of be there be part of it watch a lot of people i played with you know john and i played sort of england schoolboys so watching this thing where Bellis trophy and lawrence obviously was and is a great mate jason leonard these guys that was a very very special moment 
Um, but I think it's more personal stuff that, that probably um, resonates. So um, I think helping players, you know, working in a players association can be quite thankless because inevitably players just want what they want and they want it yesterday and you need to sort it out. And, and, and. So I think any time a player says thank you is, is very um, special to everyone who works in that environment. Um, and one story in particular really resonates because I was having parent, I was having lunch with my parents in Richmond, and, and a colleague of mine came in with a with a player. And um, anyway, the player sort of came over, who should remain nameless. He came over, and he, uh, we were chatting. So I just want to say thank you for everything you've done for for me, for the for for, for the players. You know, your colleague Ben has been amazing. Um, and anyway, he, he'd been charged with, um, he'd been found uh, having taken cocaine and uh, had a two-year ban reduced to one year because of all the work we did behind the scenes. And he, and he just said, you know, if it wasn't for the RPA, I, I would have taken my own life. Yeah, and you just sort of sit there and even now, you just think, wow. And, and I guess it's probably some of the lives that we've saved over the ways, over the years, the people we've helped. Um, and, and the fun we had, you know, I mean, it, you know, the world is changing, but we had an awful lot of fun as, as, a, as a group. Um, and obviously sport is now growing exponentially, demands are growing on players and from players exponentially. So, um, yeah, I, I look back with huge pride as to what we've achieved and, and excited for the next phase of the RPA and what it can go on and become more central to the decisions that are being made in the trophy. But, um, yeah, it was, it, was, um, it was a hell of a ride, as I say. You've always said that you obviously said that it was the right time for you to step away. What was the particular thinking behind that? Was that just? I, you know, I think pre-COVID, you know, I probably um, felt that um, I, I probably just felt it was it was time. COVID obviously was all about surviving, just making sure that we all got through the, the two years. I mean, you thought it was going to be like a 10, 12 week thing, and then yeah, we let our offices go. We sort of moved moved remotely. And, and then as we've emerged through COVID, it just I just felt like it was it was the right time. So um, yeah, and and you know I think in any sort of lifetime of an organisation, it's important that leadership um, is um, what's the right word? Yeah, I guess it's important that, that leadership evolves. And um, as much as I love doing what I'm doing, I certainly felt that there are people internally who could come and make more of an impact and probably have more of a relevance for a younger playing group. You know, when, I, when I'm going around the clubs, I had a very emotional last day at Wasps actually, which, which was full circle for my journey. So also I started there as a player when I was 16 in the Colts and I finished my time at the RPA there at 52. And uh, but I was incredibly emotional. I knew I would be, but it was, it was, it was a great day, you know, to see the next generation of players. Joe Launchby very kindly gave me a, a shirt um and um but you just know when the time is right and um you know now i look i look on as i said from the, from the sideline of watching all the stuff around concussion and worcester and all these sorts of things and, and i don't miss that if i'm really honest that you know i love the commercial element growing the game i just feel that rugby is it's got some significant challenges around concussion around the finances of the sport so um i watch with interest i'm sure i'll you know i will get back involved in sport in due course, but um, certainly the for the time being, it's quite nice just to be um, sat on the sidelines. I know obviously your 
you're off on a challenge later today and to restart rugby it's obviously a big charity you've spoken to a few guests about it before what for you does it, does it mean to you and what's sort of your involvement with it so so i guess restart was the the charity that i helped to found in 2001 and uh, that was on the back of a spinal injury to a player called andy Blythe and 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 um alistair hignall the um former cambridge in england fullback um and his um illness and it's one thing i think the game should do an awful lot more with and that's looking after its former players so you know restart was um set up really around physical men physical and mental health and hardship and uh you know we've seen a number of players over the years obviously very public physical um health challenges i think about matt hampson um you know at jackson we talked about and then a number of mental health challenges that you know we've seen players take their own lives we've saved players lives and i think if i if i throw my mind back to me as a sort of 25 26 27 year old coming out of the game there was nothing there and we know that the first two years after a player an athlete leaves their their sport are the, are the hardest because you have all these challenges about self-esteem and who am i and um what's my purpose and I'm not the person I used to be because I can't play rugby. And, and I've gone through that and I know how, how tough it can be and, and, and is. So we set up Restart really to, to sort of tackle that. And um, we looked at, um, we look at a number of programs around um, insurance, welfare, confidential counselling. And um, we just want to put an arm around players and, and we want to try and help them as much as we can. And we're funded purely by, Restart's funded purely by uh, individual uh, donations. We don't get any government funding. We don't get anything from the governing bodies in the game, which is something I know we're, the RPA and Restart are trying to address now. Um, but I think there's a real sense that when players leave the game, they're sort of on their own. And what we want to do is make sure that isn't the case. So at 11.30 today, I'm sporting, I'm sporting the colours. There we go. 11.30 today, we're off to the Alps. We've got a, a charity trek. We're going to climb three mountains in three days three countries and uh, i know ed jackson's been on this uh, podcast before Freddie. and and you know i think about three years ago four years ago ed came out to the mountains the first time i've just um gone to the top of snowden having been told he'd never walk again he climbed to the top of snowden and then we went to mont Bouet, which is ten thousand feet up and and to see ed navigating this with basically a, a, a misfiring hip on two sticks and sort of dragging his left leg up behind him. And then he spoke so beautifully at the top of the mountain and we were all in floods of tears about focusing on what you do have in life and what you, what, not what you don't have. And now he's become a sort of man of the mountains. He is, he's sort of out there all the time. <laughs> and, um, you know, it has raised a huge amount of money, not only for restart but for his own charity millimeters to mountains he's written a fantastic book and credited restart with the support we've given him so there are probably hundreds if not thousands of players restart has helped over the years and um i think sometimes when you when you talk about professional sport people go oh you you know you all get paid as much as lionel messi every week why, why would i give you any money like you know you're all hugely successful sports men and women but the bitter truth is that you know, that isn't the case and you know we need to we need to be more rugby definitely needs to be more to support its own and when they leave the game we, we want there to be some sort of immediate help 
um, to, to, to sort of make sure that they can actually, you know, make that transition into their next career. You know, sport is unique that when you retire, you have to go and get a job. So um, we do a huge amount of work in that space as well through our, through our colleagues. So, so that's, yeah, that's the big driver for us. And there's about, I think there's about 12 of us heading out there. And so any fundraising, you know, I feel like Bob Geldof here at Live Aid, but any support you can give would be amazing. I know Freddie will put the link on, on it, but that would yep. be amazing. And it just makes a huge difference, you know, to, to be able to hit our fundraising targets and, and be able to do stuff. It costs us £60,000 a year to run our mental health program and the mental health counselling service. And, um, you yeah, know, we have about 60 players per year um, doing that. We, we think with everything that's happening at Worcester at the moment, we're probably going to get more and certainly players leaving the game, um, you know, maybe with, with all the sort of wage cuts and what have you. So we know that's going to go up. So, um, yeah, any support that, that, that anyone can give would be amazing. Are you feeling confident on a personal level about the challenge? Have you... Absolutely not. No, I've done little <laughs> or nothing. I've got, uh, I, 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 the first time I did it, and it, it's, it's a stunning event, the first time I did it, I, I bought my walking boots 24 hours before we set off, um, much to the horror of everyone on there. But it, it's, it's great. And, you know, just to spend time in the mountains is a very special thing. But um, just, you know, being with people and, and, and Chamonix Hardcross, who are the, uh, or Chamonix Challenge, who are the group who organised it, just do a brilliant job putting it all together. So, uh, yeah, I can't wait. And a nice uh, cold beer at the end of every day to celebrate our, um, our trekking will be very much in order. Or maybe two. On behalf of all of us here, wish you the best of luck. And yeah, I'll put the fundraising link at the bottom of the podcast and it'll be on the Instagram. Um, but hopefully you'll let us know how it goes when you're back. Um, I will. But yeah. thank you so much, Damien. That was that was really great. So thank you very much for joining great. us. Um, and Thanks, Freddie. Really appreciate it. Nice to, uh, nice to catch up. And best of luck with your final year extra. Thank you very much. Well, safe travels um, and hope it all goes well. Thank you very much. Thank you, buddy. All right. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.